Hello and welcome to the Iceberg of Economics, part six. Um, we've only got two parts on the official iceberg before we get to crazy town. And this one is about, I would have had a common theme. It's like interesting ideas in economics, but have never really been tried. Um, yeah. That's kind of really the wrap on this, but let's get started. The first one is steady state economics. Um, and steady state economics really is the idea that all things equal, if you have input the same amount of resources and have the same amount of people, you will get effectively the same amount of output. And the economist who's most notable for this is a guy named Herman Daly. And it's really, you have a constant stock of capital, a constant stock of people, and you maintain those similar levels through selective policy measures to make sure that the economy stays at the current state. Um, the reason really, um, for this is partially due to dailies and steady state advocates' um, criticism of just consumerism broadly, and they feel like living standards are sufficiently high enough even back in the 70s when this first got drafted, and people should just be learned to live okay within their means, and as long as we don't have a decline from here, we should be fine. Uh, the second thing is just environmental concerns again. Uh, if you have if you have the economy not growing, it means you're not increasing the rate of damage to the environment. And it's more practical than, say, the next term that we're going to talk about, like go, is the, which is degrowth economics, which is actually starting to cut and have a target of actually lowering the size of the economy. So it's kind of, I think, of steady state economics is kind of like the, the moderate version of degrowth it's just the goal is really just to kind of keep it the same but it's also state state economy is really just making an ideological platform for to try to achieve a goal of the idea of caterers parvis all things equal we use this as a theoretical like example of like what would happen if you did bring in an exogenous variable to change the current economies the steady state the default it's the no hypothesis really in economics, but there's also a actual goal of creating a steady state economy. So it could mean it could mean both things. And speaking of that, the next one is we're going to talk about is degrowth. Uh, degrowth economics is the idea that um, due to shortages in natural resources and environmental damage, um, peak oil, and the declines of megafauna and a lot of other real concerns which is resource consumption in the environment that the goal should not really be to grow the economy but actually to shrink the economy and the damage and the consumption of natural resources of humanity um, a more moderate form of this would be really the goal would be to try to keep consumption the same outright in terms of living standards but use technological innovation 
to use less resources for the same amount of goods and services. That's, I think, what most people who are advocating for who are advocating for degrowth, but more extreme advocates of degrowth want just outright just decline of the ecological footprint at any cost. And they say like, hey, we have to cut resources by X amount. It doesn't matter if you have to cut output, if you can't do it in efficiency gains alone, climate change or other environmental disasters are that dire. We don't have luxury to be patient at a steady state. So really the debate in this field of the degrowth advocates is how fast to go about doing it, even though they all have the same end goal, which is to reduce the amount of resources being used. And it's also associated with a lot of other progressive causes because apparently excess economic growth creates inequality, which I've talked about already with um, Thomas Piketty. But yeah, it's um, it, 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 degrowth really hasn't been tried in any meaningful way. I mean, companies, of course, try to do it just by to increase profit margins, but on a countrywide level, um, it has the main criticism really of degrowth is um, who are these policy elites are advocating for it have the right to say how good of a standard of living is good enough. It's the same criticism of steady state. And there's also been a lot of positive benefits to economic growth. If it wasn't for economic growth, we wouldn't have a lot of cures for a lot of diseases, which a generation or two ago would have been an instant death sentence. Now you have longer lifespans because of economic growth. Uh, you have a lot higher quality of life due to things such as the internet making all of our lives easier. Like if it was for economic growth, you wouldn't be able to watch me summarize this iceberg right now, or even the person wouldn't be able to make this iceberg. You've had to find some obscure textbook at the library about each one of these topics and if the degrowth people got what they wanted when this first started to become popular in the 60s and the 70s. And there's also a political component. Um, if you are going to degrow, who eats the burden of that? Um, is it just the people who in your political opposition are the ones who are going to have to cut their living standards first? Is it going to be those who are historically disadvantaged or historically advantaged or people live in geographies that are more environmentally degraded than others like yeah it's it's a the politics a lot of it is just a measure of who eats the brunts of losses of change and this would be no different how would you decide that um but yeah overall that's what that's what degrowth economics is um, next we're gonna talk about the lange learner model of socialism it's kind of a way to add markets in the end user, but at the same time have the state own every business. Um, so it would be in the sense that the state would own all the property and the means of production. There wouldn't be any private property other than like personal items in this world, but they would let um, business owners and markets uh, set like the pricing and the desired allocation for goods and services. So if, for example, people all want to buy red umbrellas and the red umbrellas sell out, that's the market signal to make 
more of those that the state-owned factory will supply what is demanded and they'll use the market impulse to determine what end users actually want to buy but they would still keep the communist model for um, public ownership and in terms of wealth redistribution and all of that. This has never been tried anywhere and so we really don't know how it would work. A lot of the um, the thing is is that you would still, even if you have figured out what the market of demand, there would be at best a lack if at worst the government will have no idea still how much to produce of quantities of goods and services because just because some people want to buy one thing one week, they may not want to buy it the next. So you're going to always be a step behind. And also this thing has never really been tested and there's no really models or framework for it. So it would be hard. It, there's no way to falsify it. That's the other real main critique of the Lange learner model. Um, and also what would be the incentive for these vendors to want to generate a Pareto outlook? Um, if you're still going to have, um, you, you basically want the bet kicking into, you want the, the pricing power and the efficiency of perfect competition, but you want all of the social goals and um, the means of production controlled by the state as it would be in a socialist economy. Now those are fundamentally, I think, irreconcilable. The, the next real thing we're going to talk about is the inverted yield curve, which we're actually going through an inverted yield curve right as I'm speaking. It might actually become one of the longest inverted yield curves in the history of modern financial markets in the United States. And the yield curve is really just the difference between interest rates over time. Um, a normal yield curve is positive sloping, whereas shorter-term debt has lower interest rates than longer-term debt. Uh, that should make sense because, say, if I wanted to um, borrow money um, from my friend and he doesn't trust the ability of me to pay back or he has to be compensated for the time value of money that the longer I have the money, so therefore, he needs a higher interest rate to compensate for the credit risk of me not paying back and also to compensate him for the time being locked up and the reinvestment risk of not being able to reinvest that money at a higher return at a future date. So that's why a 10-year bond historically would say yield 4% versus a 2-year bond would yield 2. An inverted yield curve is when you have the opposite, it's when the shorter end of the curve as a higher interest rate than the longer end of the curve. So right now in the markets, you have the short-term rates at 5 5.5%, and you have the 10-year yield at 4%. Um, it's, so you actually are getting compensated more to lend in the short term than in the long term, even though in a normal market, you should want to demand higher interest rate in the future due to the risks I mentioned before. The reason why you have inverted yield curves because yield curve inversion is anticipation for recession and as a byproduct of recession, interest rates getting cut. So people will take a, sh a lower interest rate now to lock that in 
So in the event that the Fed cuts rates and the whole curve steepens again through interest rates dropping, you'll still get that 4%. So say, for example, we hit recession. Fed cuts um, the front end of the curve from 525 to 2%. Um, so therefore, you now there's people who own short-term debt when they want to reinvest in short-term debt. They can't get the same yield. Whereas the 10-year will still drop, but it will drop from, say, 4.3%, or is, as I'm recording this, down to, say, to 35 So it's still a positive sloping yield curve, but those people who locked in their interest rates um, did so because of anticipation of the whole yield curve dropping and steepening through... Um, that's why that's why yield curve steepens during recessions because of cutting of interest rates. Uh, that is why a yield curve inverts. And historically, there have been nine yield curve inversions since the '60s, and eight of them have resulted in recessions. Uh, so far, we haven't had one yet, but it's too early to determine. And the, the inverted yield curve is a strong sign of why I still believe there's a high probability of a recession within the next 12 months, even as a lot of the market consensus has gotten a lot more um, optimistic about the future trajectory of the economy. Uh, next, we're going to talk about is Georgism, also known as geolibertarianism. Georgism is an interesting heterodox philosophy from the late 19th century, which I think could actually be increasingly relevant in the modern world. And I think Henry George is actually one of the underrated economists out there. Um, he wrote a book called Progress and Poverty, which really summarizes his economic theory. And his main concern really is the distribution of economic rent and um, how landowners are disproportionately gaining from the benefits of economic growth. You can see this example living in a city such as San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco has experienced a lot of economic growth, say, especially from 2009 to 2020, uh, due to the influx of Web 2.0 and the related startups and the emergence of big tech companies and the high pay wages. However, the problem is, is that even though incomes in the San Francisco Bay Area skyrocketed as a result of all these high paying jobs, uh, rents and property prices increased a lot more. So the biggest winner from the tech boom in the Bay Area was not really outside of a few founders with high concentrated um, share positions, were not the workers building these new technologies, but the landowners um, who are renting out or um, selling these properties to the new inflows of people. And Henry George saw this even when he lived in early 19th century San Francisco, which had its own issues with land shortage and saw how disproportionate gains of the city were really just going to elite landowners. And as a result, his policy really solution was to replace all the existing tax framework with a single land tax. 
and the single land tax would be a tax that would basically tax the economic gains of just holding raw undeveloped land. So like say for example if you own a piece of land in a desirable area and you're not using it or using it as a vacation home you're gonna pay um, a fairly high tax on that. However if you convert it into something of more economic use such as like an apartment building or an office building or um, a factory or whatever you don't pay any taxes on the improvements like you do with a, a modern property tax. You just pay the equivalent of the society's economic cost of having it just sit there as vacant, unused land or for just personal consumption. And so what this does is two things. One, it mainly becomes a um, discourager of land speculation. Uh, if people can't make money just sitting on a property and having it go up because of um, some policy trend or people moving to a certain neighborhood or just sitting and collecting rents without any improvements, then people are less likely to do that and invest their capital dollars in things that generate returns. Or if they do buy properties, they'll buy properties to make capital improvements to improve the productivity of the region. Um, the second benefit of this single tax is it makes owner occupying more affordable than it would be otherwise because you have less bids for land speculators and um, since because there's a relatively high property tax it doesn't make sense for people to own multiple properties whereas like you instead you you have the landowners who live there can just buy a property at a much lower price due to the, ch the tax changing the demand component of property markets. And in theory, this would work fairly well because you wouldn't need income tax. So sure, your property taxes would be higher than the system, but say a property tax is 5% and you make $125,000 a year, which would put you say in the for this example, I think in like in the 25% tax tax bracket. Actually, make the math easier. 100,000, you 100,000 a year. You're in the 20% tax bracket. Um, and if you live in California, you're in the 29% tax bracket for this example. But, um, and yet your your property tax instead of one percent on your $500,000 house would now be 3% or 4%. So you're paying now, instead of 5,000 a year, you're paying $20,000 a year, but you're not paying any income tax. So you're still better off, or at worst, break even, except you're actually still better off because you're not paying property tax, but you're paying the same as you would have paid in income tax in this new single tax. And so that is the idea of Georgism essentially is that landowners who effectively get the most benefit from the state because that's the reason why their property is worth more than a than living in a government that is more dysfunctional and they provide the national defense to protect your property, the police to enforce your property rights 
they build the roads and the infrastructure so you people can access your property and it's livable and that's a lot that's mostly done by government so really shouldn't the landowners be the ones paying for it um, under georgism they would um, the main real critiques of it is one it really hasn't been tried outside of a few colonial outputs in asia in the 19th century it seemed to have actually a decent amount of success um, in those parts of the world um, the other thing is a lot of people preferred marxism because marxism was more politically popular because it had a, a more of a retribution and punishing effect on the quote-unquote rich and people like the eat the rich political rhetoric which um though income tax is a far stronger um sale of it the other critique is that um even if the georgia's policy was there it would keep real estate prices relatively low so people who like to make their money in real estate would have a harder time doing that as well as it would restrict the growth of the size of the government because if you have property prices stay relatively constant adjusted for inflation and your tax property tax rate doesn't change that much over time then it's very hard to grow revenue and so your revenue is more capped whereas you have an income tax income tax you can raise the tax rates easier and on top of that even if you don't you can inflate your way out of your debt and use bracket creep to increase your revenues so for Paul, for governments, income tax is a much more um, way to increase revenue. But the thing also, the other benefit of the, of the George system is that it's a lot easier for tax compliance because you can't really hide the fact that you own a property. You either own the property or you don't. And if you own the property, you have to pay a fixed tax. Property tax is the easiest correct. You can't just take your your land with you across a border if you decide to move because taxes are too high you have to pay tax on the property whether you live there or not and or it gets appropriated um so yeah there's notable economists such as robert solo endorsed it i'm just surprised that um that it really hasn't caught on more i think it's a really interesting idea especially in a world of increased real estate shortages could be actually politically appealing to the right um campaign um the next one we're talking about is ecological economics which is, i think this is really essentially the same as environmental economics donut economics and green um economics and degrowth it's just it's not exactly but it's a similar idea that you need to factor in ecological considerations and um and negative externalities towards the environment and then the last one we're going to talk about is the minsky moment um hyman minsky is a famous economist who analyzed business cycles and a Minsky moment historically is when you have a business cycle that gets um, overextended and you have a major collapse in asset prices when the credit crunch happens.
it shows that basically credit expansion and stock prices and asset speculation moves at a steeper parabolic curve than the GDP does. So like when GDP goes up like 5%, the speculative assets will go up 15 to 20. But then when GDP goes down 2 or 3%, then those go down 40 or 50%. And it's shaped like a parabola, but with a much stronger down slope during the down part of um, the Minsky um, of the financial crisis. Um, actually, financial crisis is a good example of a Minsky moment. So honestly, um, Hyman Minsky did not um, coin the term. It was coined by um, PIMCO economist Paul McCulley in 1998 to describe the Russian financial crisis and how things were going fine really until um, the Russian ruble broke and then the whole Russian financial markets and economy just completely collapsed in one Minsky moment. And why Minsky moments happen is also a lot due to leverage because when speculative investors buy things, they often, whether it's real estate or stocks, they often buy it with margin or mortgages in the case of properties. And so if you're levered, you can't stay in the position the whole way up or down. If it moves a certain more, more than a, down than a certain amount, if it's a, um, a stock position, you're going to get margin called. And your payments on your mortgage are due no matter how well the economy is good or bad. And a lot of places have incentives structured in that like if you're underwater on your mortgage, you can walk away with little penalty and that's kind of what happens. So people see that they're in negative equity, unlikely to recover. They walk away from the property. And then once they're done with that, the bank now has to force to sell it. So at least they can recover the val most they can on their loan. And that causes a spiral of selling. And then with stocks, it's margin calls and futures. It's also margin calls. So you have at the worst liquidity contract, right when everybody needs to sell, which then accelerates the sell off further. And so, yeah, Minsky moment is really just the mechanics of a bust. And it actually kind of really kind of Minsky moments um, and Minsky's um, philosophy on this actually highly correlates. It's very similar to the Austrian business cycle. And with that, we are going to wrap up Layer six, we've got one more before we get to my own additions to the iceberg. Thanks for watching.